Naffy Break Podcast. I'm your host Dominic O'Sullivan and I'm delighted to welcome you to this special bonus edition on today, Remembrance Sunday. Today we're going to meet Matt Simons, who after seeing the news, as everybody did with the Afghanistan evacuation unfolding, took it upon himself to actually stand up and serve again, in the words of Johnny Ball, and to do something about it. He set up M's for Afghans, And it's an initiative which has gained momentum, which has gained him national recognition and is doing some fantastic work. I hope when you listen to this episode, you'll recognise the qualities that our servicemen have and their relentless willingness to continue serving and to give back. Well, absolutely delighted to be joined on the Naffy Break podcast today by Matt Simmons, who is... The founder of uh, M's for Afghans, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But first of all, welcome to Nafi Break, Matt. Hi, nice to meet you, Don. So, listen, we we both know the Nafi from our Air Force days. You were RAF as well. I think I was leaving as you were joining. Uh, so I don't want to give our ages away too much there. <laughs> um, but tell me a little bit about this, the kind of service background that you've had, and and kind of what you've done in the uh, in the Air Force. Yeah, so so I joined in the back end of '98, um, left middle 2006, and um, after training, uh, straight straight onto Chinooks um, at RAF Odium. Um, once you're on helicopters, you'll you'll never get off. Yeah, you're you're sort of sucked in to to that to the green RAF, as we'll call it. Um, yeah, so yeah, spent all my t- time at RAF Odium. Um, in a bay there and um, on 27 squadron as well uh, had tours to to Afghanistan uh, Northern Ireland um, as part of uh, S4 in um, split in Croatia so obviously where they were operating that out into um, Bosnia um, managed to get away without going on a on a boat I know how that, I should say ship being the Navy like their ship uh, yeah. We don't want to upset some of the listeners here, yeah, so we'll get, make sure we get it right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I'll call it a ship. Um, yeah, so I managed to get away with that one, though. Uh, uh, so listen, Air Force career-wise, uh, I mean, obviously you spent you know about seven years or so in the military. What was what was going through your mind while you were in, in terms of what the future looked like? I mean, you know, talk about the twenty-two year point of leaving, etc. But what what was a, what was going on for you that you thought actually yeah, I mean, time to get out? Yeah, for, for me, I think, I mean, in hindsight, I should have put in for a transfer. I was, I was getting frustrated, really, being on the uh, being on a Chinook squadron, following the Marines and Army everywhere. And then, um, you know, the, those chances going on the ship as well. I, was, I didn't really join the RAF to do that. I wanted to stay in hotels. Um, <laughs> we'll just yeah. get that dig in there for the yeah. for the other services yeah, yeah that's it so um but, um yeah so it, yeah in hindsight i wish i wish i put in for a transfer it was just we were coming back from somewhere and within weeks go, going somewhere else and yeah it, it just it, it no sort of you know family life no no home life it was just away all the time and not being able to plan anything 
Um, so sure. No reason for uh, so listen, the, the decision to come out, did you kind of know what you wanted to do or was it almost by, by what you've just said, getting away from helicopters, but staying in aerospace, was that actually what you wanted yeah, to do or so, did you want a changing career? No, so yeah, it was always going to be as soon as I, I, I come out, it was, um, I was an airframe technician. Um, so I, before I, I came out and knew and I, I knew I was coming out, I looked at sort of mostly predominant, uh, predominantly in um, aerospace, hydraulics, pneumatics. Um, one of my first jobs uh, was on mining machinery, actually, as a hydraulic engineer. Um, so it was like fitting, fitting hydraulic parts to, to mining machinery. Uh, that was just outside of Birmingham. Uh, I was with a girl at the time. We split up. Uh, ended up back in Cornwall and had a few jobs in Cornwall and contracting roles for Airbus. Um, and now I'm in Hampshire working for Eaton Corporation. I'm again building parts for Airbus. So were there any were there any surprises when you left? I mean, obviously you come from an environment very structured. You kind of you can see a future, and obviously it wasn't quite the path that you wanted. But when you left, and we always talk on this this pod about the transition and the challenges. Was there one thing that sticks in your mind to think, do you know what, I wasn't expecting that when I left? Um, do, do you know what? The frustration was probably t- teamwork, having to, uh, where you're so used that you're in an environment where you're so used to everyone pulling together as a team, no matter uh, what what service you're in, no matter the differences, it's just you pull together as a team. And um, it's collaboration across every single department. You, you all work together. And I find I, I found that a struggle, and I still probably do to, to today. Um, just I can't get my head around the lack of collaboration and the lack of teamwork in some areas. And I, I don't know, and other people in the forces or that, that are veterans, I think, you know, they feel the same as well. It's like just things that are common sense and you think, you know, if you work together as a team on this, we, we can get the job done. Yeah, and I suppose it comes as no surprise that the the number of people who leave the service and then get involved in teamwork and leadership, you yeah, know, coaching and training or whatever, because the demand, you know, companies recognise that, you know, yeah. actually we need to yeah. we need to get this ingrained in our business. So, yeah. yeah, it's a common thing I think I hear with a lot of people leaving is that they miss that kind of teamwork, yeah. that camaraderie, that, yeah. that, that collaboration. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, definitely. So, um, listen, I want us to kind of jump forward a little bit, if we could. You're currently working with uh, Eaton. Tell, tell yeah. us a little bit of, yeah, tell us a little bit about the role that you've got there and the company that you're in at the moment, because I think there's a relevance to this when we move forward in our conversation. So, so I'm a mechanical technician. At first, it was um, a contracting role here. And then actually, just before COVID, uh, luckily, I was given a permanent contract. So, so it saved my job because they got... They got rid of um, a lot of contractors as soon as COVID hit, of course. Um, I build air, um, fuel valves for Airbus. Predominantly, they go on A320s, uh, A321s. And, um, yeah, they sit fuel valves that sit inside the wing, basically. Um, switch fuel between different tanks. Um, so I sit, sit on a bench. We work in a small team of people. Uh, I work with a good, good bunch of people, actually. Yeah, really good bunch of people. Uh, good relationships in the workplace. So, so listen, Matt, you've you've been with them now for about three years, I think. Yeah, 2018 three, when you for sure. 
So listen, you know, people do their normal job. And I know when we're in the military, we kind of do our primary role. And there's always this thing called secondary duties where people take on, you know, additional things like running the the camp football team or or setting up the, you know, hockey club or whatever that is. And and those are looked at, you know, pretty favorably when you're in the service. But in kind of the civilian world, that's not really a thing so much. I know people do charity events and things like that, but yeah. it's probably not as prolific as it is in, in the services. And no. we remember the Air Force particularly. Yeah. But obviously in recent months now, we've and everybody's seen in the news the 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 whole issue around Afghanistan and the evacuation yeah. of people from there, and obviously the whole issue over the Afghan interpreters. Yeah. Now obviously this is how we've kind of hooked up and have the conversation. Tell me when when you saw that and when you saw what was going on there, what did it spark in you? Why why was this a particular thing that you picked up on? Well, I think um, so. I think it was a Friday night, um, back in mi- middle of August, and obviously that's when it started to uh, to get out in, in the media. And I didn't really pick up on what was actually happening, um, apart from little glimmers in the media. I didn't pick up what was actually happening in Afghanistan until that sort of time. Uh, I sat there on a Friday night and um, before sort of um, the Taliban coming to Kabul and there was talks around, oh, we'll, we'll start airlifting people out, we'll start evacuating. And I was like, uh, I just felt it as a sense of duty, really. Then I, I, I started to think about the steps over that weekend. Well, if they're going to be coming into our country, what will they need? And I think it was quite early on that it was um, evident they'd be in hotels for a long period of time. And um, yeah, so I started to go through steps just just from that sense of duty, really, um, because it was my first. Although I'd been to um, split Croatia by that point, um, Afghanistan was my first proper operational tour, um, and it, it just left a lasting sort of impression on me. Um, now, now, listen. Some people, you know, other people will have been watching the same news items that you did. They'll be kind of sitting at home. They'll be bumping their gums over the what's gone on or they'll be shouting at the TV or they'll just be ambivalent to it and it'll just pass them by. But you've mentioned there about a sense of duty. Why particularly what, you know, the cause of the kind of Afghans, particularly the interpreters, which we're going to talk about, what is it, what is about what they've done that kind of resonates or or makes you feel the way you do about it? Just because they work so closely with with us, with our armed forces and I'd experienced best hands. Um, although just on, you know, as an RAF squadron, you know, we were just at Kabul Airport first and then Bagram. Um, but, you know, they were working alongside us on the base. And so I think that's where the sense of duty sort of sprung from and knowing, you know, countless times throughout, throughout sort of our British forces being in Afghanistan. And especially with the interpreters, they would have saved British lives at times through being able to have that dialect. Um, with people so yeah that's weird so obviously you haven't just sat there watched it you know got no. emotional about it maybe or put some money in a collecting tin here you've yeah. gone as way way beyond that now tell us yeah. about m's for africa tell us what you actually went and did about that yeah so that weekend like i said i went through steps of thinking what they had needs and the town i live in emsworth um in hampshire just outside of port uh, between portsmouth and chichester they they always sort of um it's quite a good good community yeah and um they get behind you know when covid happens that you know it's the whole community uh, you know rallied around each other if anybody and there was lots of volunteering and uh, volunteering organizations so i knew that starting a, an organizing 
organization in Emsworth. If I could get get my voice heard and get us out there, then I would get back in as well. Um, sort of went through a plan, a step step by step plan of what we needed to do. Set up a Twitter account, and I just started putting posts up. Um, um, made contact with the local on the Monday morning. Went to the local church and asked if they could be a donation point, which they come back and said, "Oh, we'd love to be. Like, love the idea. We'll totally support you with this." Um, started putting posts up asking for people to, to come into the church and uh, donations, clothes and uh, toys basically anything. And I went to other charities to find out what sort of items they, you know, they sort of were asking for to get an idea. Um, yeah. And from there, it just, it grew and grew and grew. And now we've got just under a thousand followers on our Facebook page. And, well, yeah. I think it's more, it's more than that. And you've probably, you know, you've all underplayed that completely there. Cause when we talk <laughs> about, you know, you talk about, okay, you've got a Facebook following, et cetera. But you've actually got yeah. into, I, I think, a really influential position with this, haven't you? Because I know you've, yeah, I know I you've been know. sort I'm out. Sort of a bit, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, a bit perplexed really by it as well about so, how I've managed to to garner this much traction, really. Well, listen, Sky News. I know I've had you on. I'm, I'm grateful for you coming on Naffy Break because <laughs> we, we might get you just before you become Hollywood. But yeah. I think the important, the important thing you've said there is you've you've stepped forward and done something about this and we had yeah. johnny ball on recently who has the stand up and serve again campaign and, yeah. and saying look you know do stuff yeah. in your local community it's public service and obviously as servicemen we get stuff done and, and you've just explained there you know yeah. what do we need we need clothes we need toys these are the yeah. things we start to build you know the the assets and stuff that we need yeah, to help yeah. this but but just tell us more i mean obviously there's a bit of lobbying going on you've got to got people's ears where is this actually gone? This is more than just putting up a sign oh, and people donating toys. What, what are we doing now? Yeah, I mean, I was told from the start, um, actually charities come forward to me, official charities, and said, you'll find too many barriers. Um, yeah, you're going to be frustrated. Um, other charities come forward and, uh, yeah, want, I mean, I won't name the charities, but somebody come forward and said, who are you? Why are you talking to these people? And I was like, hang on, like, surely it's a good thing what I'm doing. It, it, and it was, yeah, it was like just really defensive this person got. And I, yeah, it sort of took me aback, really. Um, but we've managed to get inside bridging hotels um, through making contacts. We've, I mean, I, I've been to about four or five different bridging hotels now. And we've got um, Stephen Morgan, MP. Uh, who's an MP for Portsmouth South coming with us on Tuesday. We've, like, I've, I've been on BBC News. I've been the Independent. I've been in the Evening Standards, and yeah, it's it's just been crazy, really. And uh, yeah, it's just been so much traction. And I, I've been trying to think of many steps ahead um, about the resettlement process, really. And that seems to have garnered quite a bit of interest. And I've had council say we haven't even thought about you know these sort of areas yet and then yeah we've come along and i'm already thinking about what what we possibly might need down down the road so matt listen you, you've kind of got out there you've now started to get people's ears as you said you know interestingly one or two charities probably feel like it's a bit of competition that it's a space maybe yeah, they should yeah. be they should be doing stuff in um yeah. but just explain a little bit you know in terms of you know, Afghan interpreters coming over here and those that have qualified have obviously been, you know, evacuated and brought in here. What's that kind of whole process like for them, really? I suppose from what you've seen and kind of what you're involved in, 
you know, what are these guys going through when they're arriving here and, and some of the difficulties or challenges that, that they're trying to, to overcome? Yeah, so when they first come in, I mean, they're, they're in quarantine at first. Um, from my knowledge, I think that when they're in quarantine, they they literally have to stay in their rooms, uh, could only be sort of out for 20 minutes a day or, or so, something. I heard that sort of figure banded about. So they're in quarantine for uh, the first... Um, the, the first people that were evacuated from quarantine for 18 days. And then uh, now I believe that's 10, 10 days. Um, and then they're moved to a bridging hotel um, where, I mean, uh, as people have probably seen in the media, they could be in a bridging hotel for what could be because of the housing shortage. Uh, it could be months and months and months that they're in bridging hotels. So, so obviously they're, they're a little frustrated. Uh, um, and they just want answers, don't they? It's a, it's a massive thing for them. They did. And not getting into the, the the political kind of arguments that obviously would fly around about you know the the why, what are we doing, etc. Yeah, but yeah, from yeah. a purely humanitarian point of view, and you've been into the bridging hotels, you've seen them. You know, I don't think we can paint a really pretty picture here. This is you know they've been yanked away from home. Yeah. They're not in, you know, and they're not got the freedom to move around and go, you know, wander around the high street, etc. How are they? How are they feeling? Yeah. The ones that you've spoken to, how are they feeling about you know their future, their opportunities? Actually, where are they going to be moved to? You know, you're in a bridging hotel now, but yeah. where are they going to end up? What What are yeah. you getting back from these guys? Again, I think it's frustration, just um, communication, really. And there's so many. You know, one of the bridging hotels that we visited have got over a thousand people in. Um, so obviously, community vacation getting through to to everyone uh is very difficult and um yeah it's just frustration and i know the people that have been moved um aren't necessarily happy because uh, the places that they have been moved to uh, they can be isolated in these areas it's wherever housing can be can be found um yeah so i know there was um there was going to be a family move close to to sort of where I live, and that ended up not happening just because they they would have been on a farm and they would have been so isolated. Um, yeah, and that's a really tough one, isn't it? Because I I kind of received something via a, a LinkedIn contact who was um, who was producing, I suppose, yeah. almost like a climatization packs, but packs for people who were going to get Afghan children into their school. And yeah. actually learning some Afghan words, making them feel welcome, etc. So, yeah, yeah. you know, th- these guys just getting them to to somewhere isn't the end of it, is it? I'd imagine that you know yeah. that's just the start of the challenges that go. That's but in true. terms of what you're practically doing now for the Afghan interpreters that are arriving, what's kind of on the agenda for you right now? What's the biggest push or the way you feel you can make the biggest difference and help these guys? So all along, I saw the sort of donations that we were pulling into the local church and then setting up a donation hub at my workplace. Um, that was sort of more crisis support. But all, all along, I, I wanted to work with the, in the resettlement phase. So that this was to make them feel part of communities um, and and for communities to break down those barriers, really, where we can say, look, you can walk down the road and you can say hello to the, to these people and they're, they're friendly. And when we visited bridging hotels, they've been so welcoming. It's, yeah, so it's to break down barriers, really. And in the future, we want to do some work in the communities and um, introduce them to, to the, the um, other Muslims in the, in the communities as well. So they, they feel that sense of connection. Um, 
yeah, there's just so, so many opportunities. And I suspect one of the you know the longer term challenges to find these guys employment because you yeah. know they will have they will have come over and some of them actually you know professional you know trades and and occupations and yeah. actually maybe not able to walk into the same kind of occupation here in the UK and take someone else. What where does that sit in the kind of like you say the longer term plan of resettlement? How how do we go about helping them in that respect? So I think it's the same like. When you leave the service, obviously you look at transferable skills, um, and I'm sure there's going to be me- there's going to be many sort of frustrations that they they cannot sort of walk back into a job similar that they may not have um, you know thought about when they were in Afghanistan or have any experience in. But it comes down to those transferable skills again, doesn't it? And um, it's something that we learn from the forces. Yeah, okay, you, you might not be you know skilled in a particular area, but uh, you, you can sort of draw some experience and you can, we can pretty much turn our hand to anything I'd like to think. So listen, Matt, there's going to be people listening to the pod who've seen everything in the news. They know they saw what you saw, but maybe not considered it much further in terms of, you know, looking forward now, I kind of wonder whether there's a little bit of, you know, hearts and minds to be, to be won over with some people that they'll, yeah. you know, I can hear, I can hear them and I've seen the comments on social media. and I'm sure you have of, why are you doing this? Why aren't we doing stuff for people in our own country? What What would your response be to, to those people who who don't maybe don't really kind of understand the circumstances and the background and the reasons why we're doing this? What Why are we doing this? I suppose is my first question. Yeah, and um, sort of my response. I don't know if uh, I've had this conversation with somebody else, and I don't seem to have received too much backlash. When it comes to that, I was really worried uh, when it when we have gone out in the media that I'd I'd find it hard to bite my tongue if I go down the comment section and read. But actually, I haven't received too much of a backlash, and I'm wondering if that is because of the veteran spin on it. Um, yeah, but the comments. I mean, I had somebody message me uh, yesterday actually, and they said, "Oh, sh- shouldn't we be looking after our own and uh, t- try to, you know?" I, I said, "Actually, you know, the, these people at times." Um, you know they worked alongside our British forces, and it is we are looking after our own. This this is what I saw as my sense of duty. I said this isn't really an argument for me being that um, you know the organisation that I've started. But again, I think it's just about being out there and showing the, these are human beings too, and I, I believe we've got a moral duty to to support them. Now, I want to kind of give a bit of a shout out here to Eaton. And I mentioned this earlier on and, and was the reason why I asked where you're working now. They've been pretty supportive of you taking on this kind of role and, and this yeah. this it, this purpose, if you like. You know, how have they helped you or how have they supported you in what you're doing right now? Yeah, they've been absolutely brilliant, actually. I um, Yeah, so I come in, like I said, it was on the Friday and over the weekend. Um, back eight weeks ago when I started to plan out what I wanted to do. Um, and I come in and I said, first, I said to my management, I said, is there a chance I could have a donation point? And he, he was like, this is fantastic. And he, I went through like my ideas with resettlement and everything. He said, we can support you further in that. And I said, well, I know I can go further. How much do you want to support me? And um, they were like, well, how, how about we just give you a whole building? Um, so they gave me, we got, we got a canteen here that, uh, we stopped using, uh, cause at one stage we added over 800 people on site. And, um, so we got a main canteen here that wasn't being used. Um, yeah, so they, I've been set up in the main canteen and 
I've pulled all the donations into here, sorted through them. I, I regularly have volunteers on site to, to sort out the bits that we take to the Bridge and Hotel. Um, we're having a massive sort out this weekend um, again. And they've supported me with time off as well and time off to do to do these sort of things. So, yeah, I, I can knock them. They've been brilliant. And we've got um, a Social Responsibility Council and he was... And the manager of that said, this is the exact thing that eating should be, you know, supporting one of our own employees going off, starting an organisation. Uh, and it, it looks like, you know, going down the road of becoming an official charity. He's it, just, this is brilliant. This is what we should be supporting. Well, that's fantastic to hear that, you you know, the bosses have allowed you to to kind of almost spread your wings with this and, to, and take this challenge on. But Matt, I kind of get the sense from talking to you and, and the kind of the way that you talk about this, that this isn't towards the end of this at the moment. This sounds like actually we've uh, got quite, a, quite a way to go. Yeah, yeah it's good, yeah. quite a way to go. So what's what's on the horizon? Where where are you really pushing this to uh, to be now? Yeah, so to make as many connections, you know, I found from the very start, and it's always been evident to me from, you know, from probably leaving the RAF, really, you need to make good connections and you need to have conversations with people. You have to make sure you're having conversations with the right people. Um, So it's to carry on making those connections, Um, making those connections that will allow us to do our work. And um, like I said, we've got um, a mentor on board who's guiding us through the process of becoming a charity. So yeah, we'll hopefully we'll be an official charity in the in the months to come. And um, we'll be doing work with local councils and who knows with government as well, maybe. And um yeah, we'll be um supporting sort of Afghans in, in resettling and not not only Afghans, but you know, we, we would like to do some more work in the community. Um yeah, I th- there's just so many opportunities and places where I mean I wouldn't call them gaps, but just opportunities. Matt, I think, you know, from talking to you and anyone else listening to to this podcast and, and hearing how you're talking about it and what you've done off the back of watching the news the same as anyone else, you know, I, I tip my hat to you. I think, you, you know, it's quite humbling actually to hear how how passionate you are about it and how you've taken that purpose on And as Johnny Ball would have said, you know, stand yeah. up and serve again. You know, that's exactly yeah. what you're doing. You're serving again, making sure these people who – who effectively put their own lives at risk yeah. by working with British forces over in Afghanistan, get the support back. Uh, and I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic what you're yeah. doing. Um, yeah. Matt, Matt, listen, you know, for your own journey, for your own uh, transition away from helicopters to what you're doing now, I, I'd imagine you, you didn't expect it to end up with what you're doing right now. But um, yeah, if, you know, with what you're doing, I, I wish you the best of luck. That's, that's all I can say. I, I, I'm pretty sure you'll, you'll drive this forward. So, um, thanks for giving up the time and coming on a podcast no problem no problem thank you for having me Donald. Uh, it's a pleasure 